those who do not have the power over the story that dominates their lives, the power to retell it, rethink it, deconstruct it, joke about it, and change it as times change, truly are powerless because they cannot think new thoughts. True power lies with those who can control their own story. You are the story that you tell yourselves. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it and connects to it. It's easy to get um, stuck in the detail and in the process and, and forget that at the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then on to the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Our heritage has shaped who we are as a people and a place today. In this series, we celebrate the stories of Auckland, the Pacific, and beyond. I'm Mark Gosper, and this is the Heritage Talks podcast. Kia ora koutou, and welcome back. Today, Auckland Library's Heritage Trust scholar, Chris Turnbull, presents an overview of the New Zealand and British relationship with the Cook Islands. He details the move from imperial to localised power, and the influence of Ariki, or High Chiefs, on the development of policy, including two prominent female leaders. The talk illustrates the intriguing interplay between the local and the geopolitical at a time when countries such as England and France were making bold moves to assert their dominance in the Pacific. Enjoy the journey. Haramai Titahi Ahua. Before I start, I'd like to acknowledge the Auckland uh, Library's Heritage Trust for their support. Also, uh, at the University of Auckland, Professor Linda Bryder, Dr. Felicity Barnes, who are my mentors and supervisors for this work from the Department of History. Um, also want to acknowledge the Cook Islands Ministry of Cultural Development and the Cook Islands National Archive for allowing access to uh, the archive material. So this talk is based on research that I'm carrying out as part of a PhD at the University of Auckland um, and also under the uh, Auckland Libraries Heritage Trust Scholarship. It makes use of the extensive archives of Pacific history that are available here in the Auckland Library, the Sir George Gray collection and the research collection. Um, also the libraries and archives at the University of Auckland and the Auckland Museum. All of these together make Auckland a very good place to be studying Pacific history, if any of you are interested. So the talk is in two parts. First of all, I want to talk about um, an introduction to New Zealand's place in the 19th century Pacific, particularly looking at missionary, commercial, and strategic contact. And then I want to have a view of the Cook Islands experience of that same 19th century world. And what I'm suggesting is that both of these histories made important contributions to the development and structure of both New Zealand and Pacific society during the 19th century. So we'll start with New Zealand and we begin with a mistake. So Governor Hobson's 1840 proclamation of British sovereignty over New Zealand contained an error. Instead of 34 degrees south of the equator, the northern boundary of Hobson's New Zealand extended to latitude 34 degrees north, and that's New Zealand there. So New Zealand, by this definition, co covered a large slice of the Pacific, 
including the New Hebrides, part of New Caledonia. This was a clerical error, and it was eventually corrected, but not before having political consequences. It was repeated in the letters patent that commissioned George Gray as governor, and then used by Gray, for example, to argue against French claims to the New Hebrides and New Caledonia. In 1853, Gray returned from a visit that he'd made with Bishop Selwyn to the Pacific. They were looking for a site for the Melanesian mission. They'd both been surprised and annoyed to find that the French were already establishing a colony in New Caledonia. So without consulting either the Foreign Office or the Colonial Office, Gray wrote directly to the Royal Navy in Sydney and suggested that they should send a ship to inform the French that there are strong grounds for believing that at least part of New Caledonia is regarded as British territory. Thankfully, they ignored that because this was the time of the Crimean War. It would have been a disastrous political move. But as late as 1870, in his speeches, Gray was still insisting that New Caledonia used to be part of New Zealand. However, Hobson's clerical error was used to greatest effect by the Church of England initiating a trajectory of New Zealand engagement in the Western Pacific. The Church Council viewed New Zealand as a route to the Pacific, and Melanesia was one area where missionary activity was not yet established. Selwyn, on the left there, was appointed Bishop of New Zealand in 1841, and the boundaries of his New Zealand extended to 34 degrees north. Selwyn used this to justify his Melanesian mission, making annual tours of the Western Pacific and bringing students back to the mission school at Koemarama, which is now Mission Bay, of course. As a result, the New Zealand public developed an interest in the mission and in Melanesia. John Patterson on the right there, the first Bishop of Melanesia, was ordained in Auckland in 1861. His murder in 1871, Captain Cook-like on a beach in the Solomon Islands, was linked by the New Zealand media to the contentious trade in labour in Melanesia and led to calls for action by Britain against lawlessness in the Pacific. Elsewhere, New Zealand's relationship was a more complex blend of politics, commerce and religion. And I've tried to illustrate this on my map of the Pacific here, a thematic map. Um, so early trade, involved the exchange of merchandise for produce such as palm oil, tortoiseshell, sandalwood, and for labor, and trade networks that extended through the Pacific and beyond, particularly to China and to the west coast of America. In 1854, Governor Gray suggested to the Colonial Office that there should be regular naval visits to the islands to protect and encourage that commerce. Gray built political relations with island rulers, he invited Tonga's King George Tupo I to send his son to be educated in New Zealand and arranged for Pacific Islanders to be admitted to industrial and native schools in Auckland. The offer of education became an important diplomatic device, leading to a succession of Pacific rulers being educated in New Zealand. Uh, Maori established independent ties with the Pacific, one of the first was with the Cook Islands, initiated by uh, Para Tuhairi, the Ngāti Whātua leader. In 1863, he travelled to Rarotonga 
and returned with a cargo of oranges and other fruits to sell in Auckland. Uh, the Rarotongan chief, chief Kainuku Tamako, came to Auckland with Tuhairi, initiating a cultural reconnection between New Zealand and Cook Islands Maori. New Zealand invested substantially in Fiji after the 1860s. What was called the Great Fiji Rush resulted from new commercial opportunities, particularly in cotton that resulted from the shortages due to the American Civil War. The settler population in Fiji rose rapidly and planters and traders soon requested annexation by either an Australian colony or by New Zealand. Later, as Premier Julius Vogel promoted commercial engagement in the Pacific, he encouraged Auckland businesses to establish a shipping service to the islands and argued for a comprehensive British policy towards Polynesia. Most creatively, in 1873, he proposed the formation of the New Zealand Polynesian Company, intended to establish a Pacific Dominion using Canada as a model and with New Zealand at its centre. This initiative was supported by Sir George Grey, who viewed Auckland as the mercantile centre of the Pacific. And so by 1884, New Zealand trade with the Pacific was second only to that of New South Wales, and New South Wales trade was particularly focused on Fiji and New Hebrides, while New Zealand traded more widely across the Pacific. There were also strategic drivers drawing New Zealand into the Pacific. Shipping to North America became increasingly important with the completion of the Panama Railway and then the Transcontinental Railway. Steamer services required coaling stations and New Zealand competed with France, Germany and the United States for sites such as Rapa Iti in the Austral Islands and for Tutila in Samoa. Robert Stout visited the Pacific in 1893 and advocated for New Zealand as a commercial, missionary and educational centre for the region, so reflecting the very similar position that had been taken earlier by Governor Gray. Richard Seddon continued this doctrine of national expansion and attempted to correct what he regarded as the mistakes of the 1850s and 1870s when Gray's and Vogel's Pacific schemes were not pursued. Seddon saw the Pacific Island question, as he called it, as of paramount importance, a means to maintain British supremacy in the Pacific and to counter the manoeuvring of other competing nations. Political forces also discouraged New Zealand engagement, particularly the larger geopolitical calculations of Britain. Two major interactions dominated British thinking, from 1850, uh, conflict with Russia, and then the Crimean War, meant that the political value of Britain's alliance with France outweighed any consideration of New Zealand opposition to either French annexation of New Caledonia or French interests in New Hebrides. And then from 1885, Britain's interest in Egypt relied on German financial backing meaning that New Zealand's challenge to Germany and Samoa remained unsupported, despite repeated petitions from the paramount chief there, Maliatawa. This preoccupation of Britain with imperial strategy and an absence of territorial ambition was countered by the very different interests of the colonies, 
particularly in New Zealand, New South Wales, and Queensland. There were some successes. New Zealand and Australian interests in Fiji and humanitarian concerns about the labour trade in the Western Pacific persuaded Britain to annex Fiji in 1874. Britain first tried to persuade the New South Wales government to assume responsibility for Fiji, just as it had assumed responsibility for New Zealand in 1840, but this time that colony declined. Its priorities were wool and gold and not the Pacific. And from this stage, you can see the Australians' colonies effectively withdrawing from the central Pacific um, and continuing to support New Zealand interests there, but they were focused very much on the Western Pacific. In 1883, in a high point of colonial initiative, Queensland unilaterally annexed New Guinea in response to German expansion there and British inaction. The colonial secretary, Lord Darby, who's on the left there, repudiated this action immediately. But in doing so, he did suggest a way forwards. And he was saying that such action could be considered if the colonies would combine together and provide the cost of carrying out any policy, which after mature consideration, they may unite in recommending. This was interpreted by the colonies as an offer to delegate imperial power, conditional on a unity of decision-making and a financial guarantee. The response was the 1883 Intercolonial Convention held in Sydney under the theme Annexation and Federation. The convention proposed that the South Pacific would become part of the British Empire, federated with New Zealand and the Australian colonies. And this was part of the process that actually led towards eventual Australian Federation. Of course, uh, New Zealand and the Pacific declined to be involved in that. However, in 1899, Britain, Germany and America agreed to partition the Pacific as part of a, of a larger arrangement that included African territories, Zanzibar and New Guinea. British influence was recognised in Tonga, Nui and the Solomon Islands, and Germany obtained control of Samoa and part of New Guinea. New Zealand in 1899 had expanded only slightly to include the Chatham Islands and the Kermadec Islands. So to conclude this first section, I hope I've shown that New Zealand was an active participant in the 19th century Pacific. It developed a complex mix of missionaries, commercial and political ties in the Pacific, and it formed enduring relationships with some of the island leaders, both as a political and a commercial partner, but also as part of the British Empire. So I want to move now to the Cook Islands and consider 19th century events from its perspective by first introducing some of the political, social and cultural impacts of the period, particularly changes to indigenous leadership, and then discussing how that new leadership interacted with the rest of the world. The Cook Islands were settled from what is now French Polynesia, subsequently resettled, invaded or colonised from French Polynesia, Samoa and Tonga. 
and as a result of the settlement pattern, each of the islands developed distinct cultures. Traditionally, several of the ocean-going canoes that settled New Zealand departed from Rarotonga. The islands were visited by the Spanish expeditions of Mendana in 1595, De Quiros in 1606, and by James Cook during his second and third voyages. Uh, then by William Bly in 1789, and again by the bounty after the mutiny, uh, which is apparently when the first oranges were introduced to Rarotonga. The bounty, of course, was going from the Pacific to the West Indies with fruit trees for the, uh, for the slave plantations, effectively. The first recorded European landing, landing on Rarotonga was by the crew of the Cumberland in 1814 on an expedition from Australia looking for sandalwood. The expedition ended badly. Rarotonga was, di was divided politically and fighting broke out, probably because of the actions of the Cumberland's crew. Several crew members were killed, including two New Zealand Maori, and the captain's wife, Anne Butcher, who was killed and eaten. So becoming, apparently, the only European woman to be eaten in Polynesia. The Cumberland left Rarotonga, taking several captives, including two women, one of whom, Tapairu, was of high rank and related to a paramount chief. Both women were left on Aitutaki shortly afterwards, probably because knowledge of their kidnapping would have forfeited a good behaviour bond of £1,000 that had been paid by the Cumberland before leaving Port Jackson. Missionaries dominated subsequent contact with the islands. The London Missionary Society had sent its first missionary expedition to Tahiti in 1797, largely in response to Captain Cook's description of the islands. The first missionaries in the Cook Islands were Tahitians, trained at a mission school in Raiatea, who landed on Aitutaki in 1821. One of their first converts was Tapairu, who had been left by the Cumberland. She met the missionary John Williams on the right there when he visited Aitutaki in 1823 and subsequently travelled with him to Rarotonga. On Rarotonga, there was initially a hostile reception to Williams and the missionaries, probably because of the experience of the Cumberland's visit. Missionary wives were assaulted, goods plundered, but Tapairu was able to intercede and provide reassurance as to the aims of the missionaries, and she was subsequently able to provide protection for the Tahitian missionaries who volunteered to stay on the island. In the Cook Islands, there was rapid conversion to Christianity. This was unusual in the Pacific. Religious conversion generally took a lot longer and often occurred only after the intervention of an influential island leader. Generally, the missions were used to enhance indigenous power and authority. In the Cook Islands and unlike other islands, missionaries preceded other forms of regular contact and so became closely associated with the introduction of Western ideas and technologies. The missionaries exploited this advantage by persuading Cook Island leaders to pass laws restricting the ability of other traders to operate in the islands. They also deliberately developed a link between religious belief and the maintenance of a chief's authority. Church membership became necessary for standing in society, and the ariki, or the paramount chiefs, 
became the arbiters of church laws. Authority and personal property became concentrated in the hands of the Ariki. So elsewhere in the Pacific Island, leaders had used the church to secure power and authority. In the Cook Islands, the church collaborated with leaders to consolidate their own power and authority. A previous fluid social structure became increasingly rigid. A new type of leader emerged, recognized by visitors and external powers, wealthy from their control over trade and land, and increasingly educated in mission schools and in Auckland. High-status women benefited particularly from this concentration of power. In 1845, the paramount leader, Makea Ariki, died, leaving no children. Because his brother was hostile to the church, the London Missionary Society persuaded leaders to appoint his sister as Makea Ariki. They cited Queen Victoria as a precedent and the benefits of her marriage to a Tahitian missionary. So this was the first Queen Makea who held her title from 1845 to 57. By 1882, four of the five Ariki on, of uh, Rarotonga were women. The second Queen Makea, Makea Takao, was appointed in 1871 and held her title until 1911. And we'll be seeing more of her. So while power and authority became increasingly stable and predictable, Cook Island's foreign policy was dominated by events in the neighboring islands of what became French Polynesia. Roman Catholic priests arrived in Tahiti in 1837. Their competition with the London Missionary Society was supported by the French government, leading to the annexation of Tahiti by France in 1844, and sparking three years of violent warfare and the eventual defeat of Queen Pomari IV. In Rarotonga, the first Queen Makea, together with other Ariki, wrote to Queen Victoria in 1844, requesting British protection. The island of Rarotonga is our own, handed down to us by an ancestry from time immemorial. In consequence of what has taken place at Tahiti, we in great fear lest the same calamity should befall our group of islands. And should this be the case, we humbly crave your assistance. So this was the beginning of a, of a foreign policy initiative that stretched through the rest of the uh, 19th century. Similar request was made in 1865, this time directly to New Zealand's Governor Gray. In 1885, the second Queen Makea visited New Zealand. She was formally welcomed by Ngāti Whātua, Para Tuhari facilitated a visit by her to the Waikato to meet King Tafio, and at a meeting with John Balance, who was then native minister, she requested British protection to counter what she viewed as hostile action by both Germany and France. In 1888, Queen Marquea wrote directly to Governor Jervois, again seeking British protection and emphasizing ties of race with New Zealand and the benefits to Cook Island leaders of being educated in New Zealand. After nearly 50 years of political lobbying by the Cook Islands Ariki, the Foreign Office was finally persuaded that French annexation of the Cook Islands was likely and so declared a British protectorate. And that, for me, was an absolutely magic moment. A decision in London had 
immediate and massive consequences on the opposite side of the world. And, and essentially, from that point on, the Cook Islands no longer worried about either French or, or German uh, invasion there. Uh, an, a, an astonishing expression of power, which is quite unthinkable today, of course. If you think perhaps of China's manoeuvring in the South China Sea, they just don't have anywhere that level of influence. Finally, in May 1890, Queen Makea and other Ariki wrote directly to Queen Victoria. They had heard that the Cook Islands were to be attached to Fiji and wished to state a preference for ties to New Zealand. And they requested that a resident be appointed by New Zealand. This suited both Britain, who was reluctant to take on further imperial commitments, and New Zealand, who was seeking more to establish more formal relations with the Pacific. So, in 1890, Frederick Moss, on the left there, a former member of the New Zealand House of Representatives, was officially appointed, appointed as British resident for the Cook Islands. Moss worked with Queen Makea and other Cook Island leaders to establish a federation and a system of self-government for that federation. This transition was driven by the island leaders, by judges and officials, officials from the islands with New Zealand's contribution through Moss being essentially expertise in forms of politics and governance. This new relationship was celebrated uh, with Governor Glasgow's visit to the Cook Islands, that's Glasgow on the right, in April 1894. Glasgow was impressed by the very positive reception he was given. The formal address to the governor made by representatives of the Cook Islands Federal Parliament noted their appreciation for the work carried out by Moss to bring the islands under a settled form of government and their desire to establish a free, prosperous and educated Maori people. However, it's a speech given by Queen Makea on the left there that is perhaps, or I feel is most significant, reciting the Makea genealogy and adapting the words from the ceremony for the coronation of Ariki, Makea informed all people that a new head has come to our land before calling on the gods, mountains, and marais to receive this new leader, and that was Glasgow. Her speech concluded with a request to Glasgow, come and stand on my shoulders and on the foundation laid by Tane, let the seed now be planted in the land that it may grow like a straight owl tree. This speech of Makea's was described by the Auckland Star as a curious address, suggesting that its significance was almost overlooked by New Zealand, but surely this symbolic coronation of Queen Victoria's representative marks a true commencement, I would say, from the Cook Islands' perspective of its formal relationship with Britain and New Zealand. Makea appears to be articulating a vision in which she, and presumably other Ariki, would collaborate with New Zealand to build a positive future for the Cook Islands, a future grounded in the strong cultural traditions of the past. Despite this apparently successful attempt at self-government, in September 1900, the Cook Islands Ariki petitioned the Governor of New Zealand for New Zealand to annex the islands. There appears to have been several reasons for this. Richard Seddon visited the islands in June of that year, 
and it was clear that there was strong support amongst the foreign community for closer ties with New Zealand. The Ariki appeared to have believed, to have believed that becoming British subjects would enhance their status and security, and they believed that they would retain their independence and authority. In September 1900, there was a further request from Queen Makea and other Ariki, this time for annexation by New Zealand. So to conclude, in the 19th century Pacific, the Pacific was important to New Zealand, both as our immediate neighbourhood and as a route to the rest of the world. New Zealand actively pursued political, commercial and religious engagements with the islands, and the islands pursued similar engagements with New Zealand and with an increasingly connected world. In the Cook Islands, the Ariki were instrumental in establishing a protectorate in securing a New Zealand-appointed resident in the Federation of the Cook Islands, and then establishment of a national government and in the eventual annexation of the islands by New Zealand. Central to those achievements was the relationship initially between Rarotonga and Britain, but largely between Rarotonga and New Zealand. Britain contributed political power that excluded competitors. New Zealand contributed ideas. Otherwise, the Ariki remained in control. So these two trajectories into the Pacific, New Zealand from 1840 and the Cook Islands from 1821, were driven by strategic concerns, political and commercial aspirations, but also by cultural ties and personal relationships. The two trajectories converged in 1890, creating a new state and a new and enduring relationship. I suggest that this outcome was a significant step in the orientation of New Zealand from the 1840s missionary-driven focus on the Western Pacific to a more complex engagement with the Central Pacific. And possibly it was a high point of Maori and New Zealand government collaboration. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for tuning in. The Heritage Talks podcast is produced regularly for your education and enjoyment. Talk notes are found on the Talks page at soundcloud.com. Come back whenever you like and feel free to add the podcast to your favourite RSS feed or iTunes. All links are in the Talk notes.